Welcome to Archonnect Sessions, episode 127. I'm Paul, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Donna and Ken. Today, we're joined by Peggy Deemer and Shoda Vashak-Madze from the Architecture Lobby. For those of you unfamiliar, the Architecture Lobby is a nonprofit organization run by and for architectural workers that advocate for the value of architecture to the public and for the value of architectural work within the industry. The Lobby is rooted in a 10-point manifesto. Since we refer to it often in today's conversation, I'll read it here before we get started. Number one, enforce labor laws that prohibit unpaid internships, unpaid overtime, and refuse unpaid competitions. Number two, reject fees based on percentage of construction or hourly fees and instead calculate value based on the money we save our clients or gain them. Number three, stop peddling a product, buildings, and focus on the unique value architects help realize through spatial services. Number four, enforce wage transparency across the discipline. Number five, establish a union for architects, designers, academics, and interns in architecture and design. Number six, demystify the architect as solo creative genius. No honors for architects who don't acknowledge their staff. Number seven, licensure upon completion of a degree. Number eight, change professional architecture organizations to advocate for the living conditions of architects. Number nine, support research about labor rights in architecture. And number 10, implement democratic alternatives to the free market system of development. One of the most recent initiatives by the architecture lobby is Just Design, recognizing firms exhibiting exemplary labor practices. Archonnect is currently working in partnership with the Architecture Lobby to profile these firms, which we're excited to announce soon on Archonnect and Architecture Lobby, so stay tuned for that. Until then, enjoy this conversation with Peggy and Shoda. So Peggy and Shoda, it's so great to have you guys on the show today to talk about the Architecture Lobby and this new exciting initiative, Just Design. Maybe you can give us a little update on what Architecture Lobby has been up to since the last time we've we've had you on Archonnect Sessions. Well, one of the big things we did was the the infrastructure thinking that we had in parallel to the AIA National Convention in New York, which was an opportunity to talk about infrastructure in a way that we think perhaps the AIA is not yet doing um, and bring in a combination of academics and practitioners and activists uh, to really think through different issues around infrastructure, infrastructure including how it is that we organize our, our profession. So that that was a, a big initiative. And then another one has been our work on the border wall and immigration and a couple of events that we had in Venice that concentrated on how, how that all affects citizenship, construction, and architecture. So, you know, I think a lot of our listeners are already familiar with the architecture lobby, but maybe you can talk a little bit about how you function as an organization, because I know that you're spread across the country, I believe different chapters. How do you communicate? How do you how do you uh, kind of implement these types of initiatives as a large distributed group? Well, it works remarkably well for how (laughs) distributed it is. There are local chapters and those chapters have meetings according to their schedule when they want and where they want. But then we have national call-ins, which happen about every three weeks. And those are just phone calls with everybody who can or wants to be on the line. And then we also every three weeks have an organization committee meeting. And the organization committee is made up of those chapter stewards 
and then people who are leading different campaigns, as well as kind of permanent administrative people. So it, it, it's remarkably fluid, but people are very good and polite and listen to each other when we have those massive phone calls. And, and I think uh, the structure is also really important to us from sort of a like working perspective, because like a lot of the projects that Peggy mentioned and Just Design included all kind of started at a very like local and immediate level with either groups in different cities or kind of organizations of chapters. And so, you know, someone will think of a project and they'll work at a local scale, kind of do some research, start working on it as a project needs more resources or kind of needs input from the rest of the group, then it'll kind of get scaled up into a national project. Um, and kind of in that back and forth between the local groups and the rest of the organization, I think there's a lot of really good discussion and sort of insight that happens that really like shapes the projects in a way that wouldn't be possible, I think, on a sort of strictly hierarchical level. How do you recruit new members to the lobby? I think the the kind of most successful sort of uh, recruiting move we've had was just having um, sort of publicly open meetings. You know, we post our schedule and we sort of reach out to different email lists whenever we have a meeting. And, you know, at those, we try to kind of both... Uh, sort of have like lobby 101 intro discussions and kind of catch people up on what we're doing. But also, you know, we work pretty hard to like make sure that those meetings are also productive for the rest of the organization. And so it kind of brings people into the action and sort of shows them what we do on a day-to-day -day level. And I think that's like gotten a lot of people excited. It's been kind of a good outlet for, uh, I think, a lot of political energy that people have had lately. And uh, I think kind of been a good structure to give like otherwise busy and uh, sort of insular, uh, busy members of an insular profession to kind of engage in politics in a way that they wouldn't know how to do otherwise. So, you know, it's totally flexible. Some people, you know, some chapters organize kind of buses to marches, you know, activist events at the AA events, that sort of stuff. Um, and it all kind of ends up being this really good outreach where we kind of sort of put everyone's energy together and all work towards the same goals on a variety of different specific projects. I would like to ask how you all, because I think about the Architecture Lobby as very much a youthful organization, and maybe it's just because I am older, but, you know, going to the infrastructure thinking, obviously there were, there were older, and I'm using older to mean like my age, I'm 52. You know, there were older practitioners. Michael Sorkin was there. Peggy, I think you and I are closer to the same age. Like, how do you reach out to people who are more established in the field? Because obviously a lot of older professional people are a little harder sell for something that purports to be a sort of youthful, radical organization. I think you're right. I think I think it is a harder sell. And I think, you know, partly because the older people have been what we could call in the old system and are anxious about what it means to overcome that. And probably most of them are also firm owners. And I think there's a perception that the lobby is mostly interested in employees. We definitely aren't just employees, but it really is a holistic mission. So I think we, we do have to overcome the sense that it's just young radicals and that this is really systemic to the profession at large. I think our board is made up of older people and they are helpful in actually talking to people of their generation and explaining why they themselves feel committed to, to the lobby and you know, think about support. A lot of that doesn't happen in active membership, but it does happen in conversations within the firm or within the classroom. So it does spread, even if the membership stays largely younger than younger than. 40. And I think it, it, it's also uh, kind of a question of like what constitutes engagement, right? Like we, right. you know, it's it's maybe more difficult for us to sort of recruit established architects and firm owners as members, but at the same time, like you know 
some really good experiences we've had with more established architects has been sort of in kind of other terms where, you know, they're able to connect us to platforms or help us out with a particular project and kind of work with us in a way that's maybe not sort of being architecture lobby member and sort of participating in the project day to day, but certainly like waving the flag and kind of getting us out there and sort of building general goodwill, which, you know, in a lot of ways is really, really, really important. One thing that I've that I've noticed in talking with friends and colleagues that work in other industries is that there are similar issues that exist in in other industries. I'm I'm wondering based on the the research and the involvement you've had in this in this space, how does architecture compare with other industries in terms of ethical labor practices and perceived value from the public? And also, um, have you ever used precedents from other industries under uh, other organizations that have pursued a similar type of uh, fight that that you guys have, that you guys are pursuing? Well, to answer the first part of that, I, I think in some way architecture is unique because it is both a creative industry and a profession. And I think that overlap is fairly singular. So you can, we can look at models of, you know, in, in other creative fields, whether that's filmmaking or journalism or writing or acting and look at what they're doing. The main model there being unionization. And then that's different than looking at, at models in, in the professions you know, where clearly unionization is not the primary way to recruit better, better policies or more active members. But in looking at medicine and law, they are able to rally around better labor practices through legislation in a way that we cannot. So our weakness in terms of numbers and lobbying is particular within the professional fields. Just to add to that, and maybe we can kind of come back to this when we talk about just design more thoroughly, but the kind of question of uh, like what we should expect from architecture relative to other fields uh, is kind of at the core of the Just Design project. And I think it's, you know, it's been something that we've had sort of tough time kind of outlining, right? That, you know, there's sort of XYZ that we can take from these other industries that have sort of worked hard and sort of used the legislative tools and like this range of things that hasn't been available to architecture to kind of uh, establish expectations for themselves. And in architecture, we kind of haven't had such a clear discussion about any of this, partly because that sort of contestation hasn't happened. And because of that, you know, I think one of the goals for Just Design is to basically ask the question of like, what should we expect and what's reasonable and what's positive and like what's good for us in the long run? And like, you know, how do we bring that into the conversation of uh, sort of the way we value architecture firms and the way we value our profession? So Peggy, one of the things that you've, well, you've written about this and I think what's been extremely attractive to me, we can't get firms to increase wages without a mechanism for tilting at the antitrust issue. And you've written about how how other professions have gotten around that. Could you talk a little bit about that? Because to me, that seems to be at the crux of what really needs to happen to kind of establish a really a good fee for the services that we provide and and kind of end run around the federal government. Yeah, no, it's interesting. The way the lawyers uh, and I actually have a certain unspoken agreement, for example, about what to pay first-year associates happened by something that's called unintentional collusion. And unintentional collusion happens when a third party that is not in any way advocating for the profession and not part of what might be seen as a monopoly enterprise 
describes conditions, and this is what happened in law. There was a, a report that was put out by the third party that um, asked different law firms, I think this was in Washington, D.C., how much they pay their first-year associates. And as soon as that was published, with no one <laughs> calling anyone up and saying, oh, let's do this, it went to, and I think it was, the, the highest pay. And there was a certain understanding that the law firms wanted associates to choose firms not based on what they were going to make, but on the prestige or particularity of the law firm. So they get around it through this kind of third-party unintentional collusion. With real estate, it's it's slightly different. And I think, you know, is it the 6% that is just kind of understood about what, what realtors will make? That happens partly because the different realtors can um, hardball people who go out of that norm. And you can hardball that because they rely on each other, not only to give each other the listings that are coming up for sale, but also the listings of buyers. And so they that sharing implies that they all have, again, an unspoken agreement about what it'll be. And people who go out of that norm get blackballed. And those are just examples. You know, I was, um, I had a young, young architect and she just became an architect and she was moving from one firm to another. And she asked me whether or not a particular salary was appropriate for her skill. And th- when she told me, I said, I flat out told her, and this goes to the, one of the questions I think that architecture lobby has in kind of their uh, bullet points. And I'm trying, I'm struggling with this as a 50 year old architect. I told her exactly what I made. And I said, I've been in this profession for 20 years. And I told her exactly what I made. And she was damn near close to what I'm getting now as a 20 year professional. And she just got licensed. And I was like, wow. So I'm wondering how does architectural lobby look at the emotion behind our attachment to what we've put into the profession in terms of experience and what we get for salary. And then when we're opening that up to kind of having the salary transparency, the one thing I, I'm, I'm constantly thinking about is that, wow, I was, I was kind of dumbfounded to find that I'm, I'm really not pricing myself accordingly. I thought I was doing a pretty good job. Turns out that I can be a f- just licensed architect and pretty much come close to what I'm making right now. <laughs> uh, I mean, I, I think there are a number of things that are embedded in that question. And, you know, one is our fear of, of transparency. And the other is maybe the shock of what it reveals. And I'm, I'm reading between the lines that, that you were shocked, maybe that, that she was making a lot, um, not just as much as you and, and what this says about your bargaining powers, that she's making a lot. And why are we as lobby members so worried? Is that part of what you're also curious about? Well, I'm curious. I mean, when we look at pay for professionals and we're, we base a lot of that on uh, experience. And I lined up my experience and I was just thinking about her, uh, what her experience, uh, just, just in terms of experience. I was thinking like, wow, I've, I've been an architect for about 11 years and I'm making X number. And here's a firm that's willing to pay someone who just got licensed a number that was, like I said, not far off from what I'm making right now. And I'm thinking about when one of the uh, principles in architecture lobby, I thought was that the idea of salary transparency. So I'm just going, I'm just, I think I was struggling with that when I was reading it and thinking about how our emotions are connected to what our value is. And then our reluctance to have that kind of level of transparency across the profession, like knowing what each other makes and being comfortable with that. I mean, that's certainly, I think, one of the things that I feel that many professionals kind of have an uneasy feeling about because there is that there's that human emotion that's connected to what we make and we can't 
we can't separate ourselves from it completely. And when we, again, when we line up, you know, experience and just thinking about it in that terms. I think that kind of emotional charge is certainly, you know, something our point about sort of promoting salary transparency is kind of meant to counteract, you know, part of it uh, is sort of a, you know, if, you know, once, once kind of the profession breaks through that and there's kind of a common understanding of sort of uh, what, you know, what salary should be, you know, expected for what experience, then suddenly like dynamics change relative to employer employees and for kind of minorities in architecture offices and young graduates and sort of people on different paths to licensure. But I think kind of putting that in the broader context of kind of a general literacy in the discipline or in the profession even about sort of how, how the economics kind of wind up working for the employees, right? You know, a lot of professional practice classes spend quite a bit of, bit of time discussing what's viable and what sort of the recommendations are from the employer side of a firm. So, you know, you learn how to get a firm, like in the best cases, you learn how to get sort of practice up and running and like figure out what things you need to bill for, what the costs are, what the overhead is, that sort of stuff. But, you know, there's not really any environment where the same kind of conversation happens for employees, right? So it's a question of like going to a firm and knowing that they work on a certain type of project. And by knowing that, being able to sort of uh, interpolate this, this might be a reasonable thing they're paying me. And, you know, that kind of then advances the conversations that we have with our mentors and with the people that we kind of, you know, like the people we nervously call when someone gives us a job offer that we're like being pressured to accept. And, you know, like we're able to have the sort of next level of conversation about how does this relate to long-term career career goals, that sort of thing. Because, you know, ideally, and like I think through the work of the lobby and just design uh, in particular, there's an environment and there's a platform for knowing, you know, what we should expect from things. Yeah, I mean, just to say... Of all the different things in the manifesto, that transparency one for me is the most obvious. And I'm always shocked when people are think that that's the problematic one. It, it, to me, it's just such a no brainer. And I think I, you know, I do get the emotional hesitancy and, you know, ego wrapped up in, in that, which I think, you know, comes from, are you the most talented person in your class? Did you have a good review? I mean, all, all the stuff that kind of has to do with your identification with talent. But I just, you know, when I, I come from that system and still when I imagine working in an office or even when I'm asking for a certain fee, if I could just eliminate the noise in my head around, did I ask enough? Is the person sitting next to me getting more? Did I bargain enough? I wasn't a good bargainer even, you know, just getting rid of that noise would help everybody. Yeah. It's a huge sort of psychological weight that, you know, none of us need to be dealing with. Yeah. It's funny because I don't even have, <laughs> it's funny when you say that, I think I have more weight around knowing it because it just, <laughs> I know. And it, I just think from, I'm again, I'm speaking personally and I'm not speaking very, you know, um, I think it's actually, I actually do think it's better for the profession. I think it's better for everybody. I, as a, as an individual, I go, wow, I really am not, I, I just think that I'm not valuing myself well enough. I think that, you know, just given my experience, not based on like whether or not I was talented in school, I was a fuck off in school. I didn't really, you know, I, I did my studio. I love my studio classes, but not even based on whether or not I'm talented enough. I just go, well, I've, I've, you know, I kind of do that. I've been in here 20 years and I've been doing this for this year. And I'm kind of going, well, you, clearly you're not talented enough to, to kind of negotiate a salary well enough if you're getting paid. Well, yeah. So, I mean, it, no, it, I mean, it's interesting. I get what you're saying. And I guess this very much relates to the lesson from, from the law firms, which is the guess that transparency wouldn't lead everybody feeling guilty about how little they're making and make that new noise in your head. That once we had transparency, there would be 
a, a set of, even if they're unspoken, guidelines by which you would not be suffering from undervaluing yourself. I think even the kind of premise that we're sort of discussing, you know, like even the idea of the, the call to your mentor as a, you know, as like a very common encounter for like a young architecture grad or a young uh, licensed architect, that, that sort of in some ways distracts from like the problem of as, you know, as a profession, there's no clear sense of what the value is. And, you know, the things that Peggy mentioned about the medicine and about the about law and about re- realtors, you know, they sort of move right beyond that because that question has been answered for them uh, in, in a collective way. You know, people right, have organized right. and come up with those answers, right. you know, without second guessing themselves on a personal level, which, you know, seems like a far better way to do it. How do you imagine wage transparency would be realized? Is that something that you just promote people talk about amongst themselves? Or do you imagine there's some kind of uh, database that would get built up with actual verifiable salary data kind of cross-referenced with years of experience and job title and location? So would it be more generalized or would it be specific and identified to the actual person? I I think they're kind of a few different models for doing that. Certainly like in uh, in the public sector, you know, they've figured this out uh, in terms of like a, a bookkeeping and sort of liability standpoint. But, uh, uh, you know, like even in, in some of the practices that we've talked to, you know, we've gotten answers that like they don't quite have salary transparency, but they have something close, which uh, sort of in its most basic sense ends up being kind of a list of pay bands, which relate to professional status and which relate to years of experience. Uh, and I think, you know, that's that like doesn't get quite there. But, you know, even having something like that, that's accessible to employees in an office and is public sort of, you know, goes a pretty good way. Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, I think I think it certainly would start with firms making it be known so that when you start, you you know what everybody else is making at, at certain levels as, as a standard. And then you have the, the option of moving above those standards for exceptional work, exceptional difficulty, certain circumstances, you know, so that in some way exceptional work can, can be rewarded. But it certainly would start with the firm making it public. I'm curious how you would like, what, what is your ideal vision for a union for the architecture industry? Well, you know, it's it's interesting, and you know, and and I'm I'm glad you brought this up because when you were talking about other campaigns that we're working on besides just design, the two major campaigns we're working on is one around cooperatives, which we've identified as a strategy for small firms, and the other one is unionization, which is a is a strategy for large firms. And it took us a long time to get to that balance or a way of distributing our work because there were very strong voices for pure unionization and we could say almost dismissal of of co-ops as a solution until we realized that we were all kind of imagining different things. And the the voice for co-ops came from those of us whose experience were in small firms, the voice for unions from those who had experience in large firms. And so now we're really trying to think about unionization as something that would be introduced to, to large firms. And the idea is not so much that you as employees gang up, if there's an agreement amongst employees to unionize, gang up against the firm owners, as much as make the discussions of the things that we're talking about that are not discussed open so that there can be collective bargaining. It's nothing more, nothing less than collective bargaining. And that should, in the end, not be a threat to anybody. It's a group conversation. And I think that sort of brings in the architecture lobby sort of role in this right now, which is, you know, as a sort of broad and uh, very democratic organization, 
you know, this is exactly like a question that we're working on actively. You know, there's people with like a range of opinions and a range of different schemes and ideas of how to get there. And it's, you know, a problem that we're working through, which is a really important part of something that in architecture hasn't been worked on before. So I don't know if any of your listeners want to want to join and talk about these questions with us, go to architecturelobby.com. Already at the plugs? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Always. <laughs> no, no, we need to talk more about the Just Design Initiative. Yeah, yeah. No, I think it's a good, uh, good segue to this new initiative that you guys have are currently starting and Arconnect is is really excited to be working with you guys to uh, begin publishing the findings of this. So Just Design is a recent initiative that that is uh, getting off the ground that is recognizing fair labor practices in architecture. And as I understand, this started out with a nomination process where architects could nominate firms, whether it's is their own firm or they work at a firm or have previously worked at a firm. Maybe you can talk a little bit about that and, um, you know, and how, how, what, what inspired this? I'll start and then, and then Shoda can, can elaborate, but the Just Design initiative, first of all, began when um, I saw at the law school at Yale in the corridor, a list of the top 10 family-friendly law firms and I was really struck nice. about why you would never, ever see this <laughs> yeah. in an architecture school. And so then it became a question about how um, how the lobby might do something similar. And what we're doing is is similar but different. But just to say the system by which we're doing it starts with a questionnaire to employees. Um, and based on what employees say about their firm, if they have very positive things to say, then as a second phase, we go to the firm owners to both verify what we'd gotten from the questionnaire of the employees um, and also to build out a kind of broader context of, of their approach to the workforce and the workplace. So what are some of the what's some of the criteria that the Just Design project is highlighting in determining which practices are providing the most exemplary uh, labor practices? Um, so we had our nomination form was kind of uh, designed along these lines uh, from sort of categories that we drew from research into the other fields and sort of from our own standards from the lobby. Um, and they basically broke down into these uh, six categories of family friendly policies, fair pay, legal labor practices, gender and ethnic diversity, uh, transparency and uh, employee agency within the office. Um, and so those six categories went on to shape our nomination form, which we then kind of built a sort of point scoring system around. And from those, you you know, we had, uh, I think, about 220, 250 submissions of uh, some duplicates of firms. And so basically from the 180 firms, we were able to narrow down to our shortlist, uh, which are the offices that we're interviewing. And so, you know, those categories, we wanted to basically organize around issues of kind of mobility for the employee and also kind of build a broader conversation around benefits. So, you know, things like uh, health insurance and vacation time, but, you know, putting that in the broader context of, you know, whether this might be a good place to work if you have a family or if it's a good place to work for other reasons, et cetera. And so, you know, between uh, the sort of very rudimentary baseline of do they do all of the things they're legally required to do to do they meet and exceed these standards that we've built from other professions? You know, where do we find a reasonable expectation for what like a good architecture practice can maintain? And I think that the answers we found, uh, we're still kind of processing these, but, you know, they've been fairly unexpected, especially like relative to dynamics of, uh, you know, geography and firm size and type of work and that sort of stuff. Have there been any 
kind of consistent themes across the firms that you narrow down into this the final list? I think it's it's kind of early uh, maybe to sort of talk about evaluations of the entire list. But, you know, certainly we've had like uh, an enthusiasm on all of these firms part to kind of uh, understand like the value of, uh, you know, of the working conditions of their employees. So, you know, it's not just that, you know, we do this, this and this. Also, you know, we pay pretty well, but rather that they sort of put the well-being of the employee at the sort of center of what they do. And, you know, sometimes uh, for some of the offices we've talked to that started out as like a very deliberate thing of I left my other office and started this office specifically because I wanted an environment where I could make sure this kind of thing happens for all employees, ranging to other firms that have told us they're doing it kind of for reasons of kind of professional productivity or to stay competitive as in hiring, that sort of stuff. But, you know, the question that we kind of run into is sort of about the problem of ascribing uh, value to labor conditions. And that's sort of not, not something that we've been able to talk about in architecture, you know, in any substantive way. So I think kind of as a really broad and sort of central goal of the project, you know, the metrics by which we evaluate um, architectural offices or, you know, places where we're thinking about working, you know, those can range from like design excellence to expertise in a particular field, maybe to sort of connections to academia or kind of other institutions uh, or professional institutions, you know, within that list of kind of, the, you know, within that formula of things that make up how well regarded an office is, we hope to place sort of the value of working conditions, uh, you know, among them. So, you know, this is something that we found in uh, offices, especially smaller offices and maybe uh, offices outside of sort of dense networks of uh, of academia, where this is something that they've been working on deliberately for a long time, but they haven't been able to sort of be recognized for it, right? There's like, there's no one that sort of says, oh, you treat your employees well, good job. And I think we, we really hope that Just Design becomes that because this is something that people sort of spend quite a bit of energy working on and rewarding them for it and kind of recognizing excellence in that field. I would love for Just Design to become, like you said, this sort of resource of people going to Just Design and saying, oh, here's firms that are actually great to work for. Like you said, Peggy, that have this sort of family-friendly policies or whatever. This might be a little thorny, but my sense in the last several years, at least, of the AIA Architecture Firm Award is not design awards, but the firm award is that they have been looking into those questions within the firms that win that award. I know for 2016, LMN Architects won, and they are, they've been ranked or, or, you know, they've been famous for being a firm that treats its employees well. Do you know if there might be, you know, in the, within the AIA, are they analyzing these kinds of questions when they give the architecture firm award? There's other topics within the AIA we could talk about, but I just, yeah, I wondered if you looked into it all into the AIA firm award as something that was a place to, uh, to, make a comparison. Um, I, I think the, the sort of the, the kind of research and the data that kind of the AIA has about this stuff is one of like the, the few places where we can go to look to these sorts of things. Um, right. And, and I think that is, you know, somewhat closed off and sort of built into like the institutional framework of the AIA. And, you know, for our purposes in trying to build a project around something that's kind of about the labor practices themselves rather than about mm, mm -hmm. any, you know, rather than about sort of highlighting the one good firm. Uh, we're really <laughs> interested in, uh, you know, not to say that there's more, but, you know, no, rather no, no, than I get you. I get holding it. up an ideal, I think, you know, we're really hoping to, to sort of broaden the possibilities of what that can be. So for instance, when we talk about like, this has been kind of something that's jumped up and jumped up in the project numerous times has been that, you know, we're talking about practices, but we're also talking about like the practices of those practices. 
practices. So as much as this is about specific firms, right, we're profiling firms and we're taking nominations for firms, you know, the sort of heart of the project at the end of the day is about what those firms do. So it's, you know, maybe it's less of a list of firms that uh, a recent grad can look at to decide where they go work for, which, you know, it, you know, once this thing kind of reaches a critical mass, I think it'll be able to serve that function. But, you know, at the same time, it's about taking kind of a broad look at what the various things that all of these firms do, you know, what exactly they are and uh, sort of how they can be beneficial. And then using that sort of expertise about, you know, 15 different ways of compensating your employees and bringing that into the conversation of an architect who's trying to find the job or at the same time, a firm that's trying to figure out how to compensate their employees. And, you know, just to give a real straightforward answer to your question, we have not looked into whether those firms that have recently been nominated are in fact as, as good as an award from the AIA might, might indicate. But I do think or we like to believe that um, if that's happening more and more is because they feel the pressure of movements like ours. Absolutely. And I think it's not just the lobby, but I think that more progressive local AIAs, we might think about San Francisco in particular, but I think New York is also making an effort, is putting pressure on national to consider this. So the word's getting out there. <laughs> Yes, it is. <laughs> Going back to Shoda, your your comment about, you know, there's many different ways to compensate an employee. I'm curious about, because when it comes down to financial compensation, for a staff to be well compensated, ultimately the firm needs to be doing well and they need to understand how to run a successful business and make the kind of money that that's required to pay their their staff appropriately. So I'm, I'm curious about how you take into consideration practices that perhaps don't have a, you know, don't have kind of revenue as their as their top priority, like maybe firms that take on more pro bono work than than average or firms that are working towards more social good projects. What do you think about that? I mean, I'm, I'm sure that there are a lot of practices out there that attract people for reasons other than than financial. And perhaps there's great working conditions that don't that don't really have money as a big part of that. Yeah. And, and I think along those lines, we are also far more interested in being able to sort of have a, a kind of well-versed conversation about the like the issues at hand rather than being able to make, you know, a very explicit recommendation to something that's like so personal and, uh, you know, so varied for so many people. And so, you know, I think the, you know, we were very careful, for instance, to, to not highlight salary as a big part of this, because we think that that, that, that that can be kind of a skewed metric, sort of dependent on, you know, particular idiosyncrasies of a firm or to geography or to kind of uh, many different variables. But, you know, we can kind of ask these questions that will essentially be able to let a, a reader sort of take all these things into account and like ask themselves if it's like if it's a good position for them to be in. So, you know, it, we're not we're not only giving awards to or we're not giving any awards, but, you know, we're not only recognizing firms that have, you know, the highest pay or the you know most vacation weeks. But we're hoping to kind of create something that's like legible and useful for people that'll let them decide if it's like a good idea for them to do it. You know, like we we sort of run into this question a lot when we talk about, you know, particularly prestigious firms that people sort of go to work for that, you know, they're willing to, you know, put other things on hold for a little while or accept less pay or what have you because it's worth it for them in the long run. And that can be the case, but even being able to sort of talk about what exactly makes it worth it, we think is a, you know, as a, as a useful rubric. And we think that like a general conversation about the kind of labor conditions that they result in, you know, in the long run kind of helps, helps everyone. 
Yeah, and just just to add, it it is one of the questions that we have in there, and I'm, I'm trying to think of whether it's in you know agency or transparency about whether you feel that the work that you are working on makes a social contribution or gives you satisfaction at at some level about its um, not just its formal value, but its um, its social value and and. Um, does that matter to your enjoyment of your work? And as, as Shoda's saying, is is part of trying to get a more holistic picture of what makes satisfaction and and not self exploitation. But I do think this is also where the issue of transparency comes in because I, you know, if if it was the case that if the firm is structured as a nonprofit or does a not a lot of pro bono, if everybody working at the firm understood exactly where the money is coming from, what percentage goes back into supporting the firm, what percentage goes into the principals and what percentage comes to them, if you could see that it's marginalized all across the board or it's you know, distributed fairly all across the board such that your not great pay still seems consistent with the enterprise, that's something to know. It's not It's not helpful for somebody to work for a firm, no matter how socially correct it is, it's a nonprofit, does no pro bono, to sit there and think, oh gosh, you know, I'm, I'm getting crappy pay, but aren't, aren't they doing great stuff not knowing precisely how the equation is set up? And I think uh, along those lines, this question kind of opens up the sort of other part of the, you know, of the, the metrics that we've been talking about, both in our nomination forum and in the kind of research we're doing for the case studies. But, you know, it has to do with kind of models of uh, professional advancement and, you know, how promotions are awarded and sort of, you know, how how benefits grow, that kind of thing, which, uh, you know, for instance, we have, you know, we spoke to an office that's kind of very, very deliberate about uh, licensure and about kind of getting you from A to B and making sure that you're licensed as quickly as possible. And we spoke with another office that really didn't prioritize licensure so much and kind of didn't use it to figure out their compensation schemes, but, you know, did think about it in relation to pro bono work and in relation to sort of other opportunities that you would have. So, you know, being able to go into an interview and ask questions about you know, will I be able to teach? Will I be able to work on some other projects? Will I be able to bring in pro bono projects to the office? Those kinds of things, um, you know, aren't just immediate questions that you would ask, but they're kind of built into the structures of how that office functions. Are you aware of any firms out there that are employee owned beyond the single sole proprietor? You know, I work for myself and I, I own my firm. Are, are there firms out there where you can, that you could point to and say that are that are wholly employee owned, where the employees have a vested interest in everything, knowing the fee structure, knowing, you know, how the, how the, how the sausage is made. Is there anything out there like that? Because it seems like that's the most viable path forward for success for everyone. I'm embarrassed to say, I don't know any, but that's what you're describing is certainly, certainly a a goal. And that, that's a large part of the cooperative movement that we're trying to get going and, you know, and help, help people structure. I can think of some engineering firms. Uh, I think Arup and Silman are employee owned, uh, but I, I, I don't know. I don't know enough about these things, but, but I think maybe, you know, more generally is it goes back to this thing of how do we transplant sort of models from other, from other professions to architecture. But I think maybe it's partly about like seeing if there are any, but I think it's also about like architects being able to do the research and sort of know the ins and outs of these things before we can say whether they work or not. Well, according to an article in Architect Magazine from 2009, 5% of the 
firms in the U.S. are owned either by a large number of employees or by the entire staff. Wow, there we go. CEO Architects in Los Angeles is one of them. But um, yeah, maybe we can follow up on our connect with a uh, with a, a piece looking at some employee owned firms. You know, I'm curious. It, it seems like this first this first launch of Just Design is really kind of like just poking at the bear, and it seems like it's about to. It has a potential to really start some real change because the way that you structured the nomination process was, you know, in a way, a little bit under the radar. It wasn't super widely distributed. And I'm sure that there's a lot of firms out there that are doing amazing work with with labor standards and and uh, the way they treat their staff that were not included. And I'm sure that this first this first uh, launch will will probably lead to many more nominations the second time. How often do you plan on on revisiting this initiative? And is it an annual thing or is it uh, biannual? Yeah, I, I think sort of uh, the, the immediate model has been that we're going to kind of keep ongoing nominations open. So it'll be sort of a rolling basis where at the, you know, at at the end of the year, we'll kind of collect all the nominations from that year and sort of start processing them for the for the second phase of the project, the the, the sort of evaluation and interviews. But yeah, I, I do agree that you know this is something that we were able to sort of draw a fairly small group of people into, and I think now that this you know can be public and can be something that like we start to talk about, it, it really will ideally sort of transform the project uh, as it stands. It wouldn't be you know a structure of nomination uh, case study you know, publish, but rather it'll be something that can sort of lead into this platform that we're really hoping to build um, that has, you know, information about firms and about different types of practices and about sort of all the things that you would need to know about this. Just to say, you know, I, I think uh, when we started the, the launch with the employee questionnaires, we had assumed that by the time we were in the second phase, which is to, you know, talk to the firm owners, that we would have gotten grants that would give us staff that would do all the administrative stuff and mean that we could not only be making this more public, but as we get the questionnaires back, could process them, you know, such that there would be a system of every other year, you, if you had gotten, at this point when we were thinking about certificates, but if you had gotten recognized, is this still the case? We didn't get any grants. And so the idea that we would keep processing this throughout the year and keep it open is the case. But I think we also have to be realistic that there would be a push, let's say every six months to get the questionnaires out there again so that it would grow in itself, that the last six months would have gotten some attention and that the thing would would snowball. You know, I I think there is the hope that at a certain point we're getting so many people, (laughs) which is what happens, by the way, with the law firms. The law firms are crawling over themselves to get on that top 10 family friendly list. We're waiting for that to happen. And then we'll have administrative staff to deal with all the ins and outs of the statistical (laughs) evaluations. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Have you ever considered having like a wall of shame for practices that that have uh, consistently <laughs> no, provided no. a horrible work experience? Just to say it was one of the first decisions about this, that we were not going to have a wall of shame, but it'd be a wall of fame. Yeah. That was a decision really early on in the lobby. And I can't tell you how many people, the first thing they say is, oh, my God, if you just, you know, called out, blah, 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 people would stop going there. But we don't want to do that. It's just to say, you know, it's it's a it's a systemic problem, and we're all suffering from that system. <laughs> well, you know, coming from somebody that that runs a a very active 
forum for the industry. I can tell you that uh, when a firm does a really bad job of treating its employees, it, it word gets out a lot quicker than firms that do a really great right. job of right. treating mm-hmm. their employees. So I think I think mm-hmm. it, this is a much better opportunity to profile those those that are doing a, a good job. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Well said. I would say that the the shitty men in architecture list that was going around Google Doc for a while, you know, there was a there was a category for not sexual harassment or sexual abuse, but just general shitty working environments. And many firms were on that. But yeah, I think it's better that this just design stay as fame, not not shame, but the, the Hall of Fame. Who's doing a good job? Ken, did you have something to say? Yeah, I was going to ask if you could, Shota or Peggy, could you talk about the other things that are kind of percolating? I saw ju- uh, the kerning competition that just came out from from uh, Architecture Lobby. Yeah, the kerning competition looks cool. Yeah, so that's uh, our kerning for a cause competition that we have every year to design a a, a poster for uh, the relevant labor, the, the legally required labor laws that uh, have to be posted on the walls of offices. Uh, I, I think that's that's kind of gotten some good attention for the lobby in the past. And that's also brought some attention to our work with competitions that, you know, we have opinions about competitions and about how they should be run and how they should be compensated that uh, the lobby hopes to work on. Yeah, there also, I mean, I, I, again, as we were saying before, there are two working groups, one on um, small firm cooperatives and, and the other is lar- large firm unionization. And each of those has a practical side, like what is the system by which that would get set up and a research side, which is what are the precedents and what are the other industries that give us models about that. So those those are fairly strong initiatives that, that people can work on wherever they're located. So, um, And I think, yeah, in addition to that, we have kind of an ongoing labor law research initiative where we sort of produce pamphlets, kind of concise uh, explanations of, you know, what employees need to know and sort of what uh, legal protections are afforded to them. And uh, that's also an ongoing project. So can those be downloaded from the website? Yeah, 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 they can. We can uh, we can send you a link to those. Yeah, we'll include those in the show notes. Yeah. I have a question that's a little bit off topic, but when I was reading the lobby's website the other day, I had noticed that Architecture Lobby is referred to as Architecture Lobby Inc., I-N-C. Does that mean that it's a corporation and not a nonprofit? No, we're, we're a nonprofit. Um, we're actually two nonprofits and nonprofits are corporations. So we are incorporated as a nonprofit. We're a 501c3, which is actually the architecture initiative. And that is how people can donate to us um, and get a um, tax deduction. And the 501c6, which is the architecture lobby, allows us to um, do political work and do actual lobbying. Um, and so we get certain tax breaks, but people who contribute do not get a get a tax deduction. Well, thank you for clarifying that. I didn't realize that nonprofits could be an ink. Well, you know, it makes me kind of nervous, I have to say, but we certainly are we we are a corporation. We're a nonprofit corporation. Uh-huh. So we've come um <laughs> so I have two questions for you. Um I either of you can answer. Um what are you listening to and what are you reading these days? Both of you should answer. Sometimes we get somebody who just wants to answer the the reading and not the listening, but you know, trust me, if you, even if it's your Spotify playlist of uh Brian Eno for, you know, music for airports, I think that's interesting too. Hey, that's my that's my alarm uh album. Every morning at seven AM music <laughs> for airports comes on. Um I'll do the the reading thing. I mean they're they're two Two things. What I just finished is Educated, you know, which is a biography of a woman who grew up in a Idaho Mormon family, a survivalist family, where she not only was 
not allowed to go to school, but she wasn't even homeschooled, who then went on to Cambridge and got a PhD. But but the story about the indoctrination she was getting from her Mormon family about how anything that had to do with the government whatsoever came from Satan is is, is eye-opening, you know, and particularly in our political climate right now. And it's a fabulous book. And then I'm also working my way through the future of the professions by Richard and Daniel Susskind, who are talking about how the professions we know are, are really declining with new technologies. It is a particular interest of mine to study professionalism. And I'm in a minority of one, probably in the lobby, that thinks that one solution to architecture is to deprofessionalize. Shoda. Um, I guess I, I've been listening to Milford Graves, who's this jazz drummer. There was a great uh, documentary about him um, that came out a few weeks ago, but it was a uh, he was very interesting because he had this kind of like naturalistic explanations for everything he did that kind of went to different ways of like visualizing the environment and music and sounds and kind of social relationships. I don't know. Yeah, I, I guess I don't want to talk too much about that, but uh, look him up. It was pretty good. So before we finish, I assume that for the listeners that are listening to this that are interested in getting involved in the architecture lobby, can they go to the website and just reach out and express their interest that way? Yeah, absolutely. Well, just to say, you know, when you were asking about how people become members, it definitely does happen at the chapter level and people join those, but it also does happen very much through the website and people will have heard about us or been referred to us and and they join through the website going to our info architecture lobby email. Yeah, and we have a a kind of forum system online that makes it possible for the you know that that's kind of how the membership keeps in touch in general. But it's also been really good because it lets uh, sort of members who maybe aren't geographically near any chapters or aren't able to make it to all the meetings, they can stay engaged and sort of work on everything and uh, you know on their own. Are there any chapters outside of the United States? We had the inaugural London chapter recently, right, Peggy? Yes. They're setting it up. Very cool. <laughs> Shockingly, there's not a chapter in Minneapolis or Minnesota, but uh, I'm hoping to change that. I'm actually friends uh. friends with one of the um, vice presidential candidates for Socialist Action Network. She ran in 2016 for the for the uh, vice president. So I'm friends with her. So I'm going to ask her to kind of provide some input. <laughs> That's great. Yeah, right on. That's great. Awesome. Just to say, the the fall meeting of JAE is in. Um, Minneapolis. And so maybe that's a chance to participate in that, in that <laughs> effort. That'd be great. And for the Just Design initiative, stay tuned to both Architecture Lobby, social media channels and website, as well as Arconnect. Um, we will be sharing information about those firms that have been selected, including interviews that the Architecture Lobby has conducted with each of those firms. So we're really excited about that. So make sure to, uh, to watch out for that in the coming weeks. Thank you so much to both of you guys for uh, talking with us today. And uh, we really appreciate what you're doing. And um, hopefully we can talk to you again soon once this uh, once once Just Design uh, gets off the ground. Yeah. Thank you so much for having thank us. Thank you. Thank you very much. Well, that's our show for this week. If you have any questions, comments or suggestions, you can reach us on Twitter at our Twitter account, Arc Sessions, or with hashtag Arc Sessions. You can also send us an email to connect at arconnect.com. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider rating us on iTunes and giving us a review. And for those of you on Spotify, you can now listen to us on Spotify. Just search for Arconnect Sessions. Thanks and talk to you next time.